Afghanistan. War in the Hindu Kush. A war fought by the Soviet Union to prevent the spread of Islamic fundamentalism. In December 1979, more than 50,000 heavily armed Soviet troops invaded Afghanistan, igniting a dangerous new confrontation in the Cold War. This is a callous violation of international law. It is a deliberate effort of a powerful atheistic government to subjugate an independent Islamic people. That was President Jimmy Carter in a nationwide TV address laying out steps he was taking to respond to the Soviet incursion. He curtailed U.S. sales of sensitive technology, cut off Soviet fishing rights in U.S. waters, blocked millions of dollars worth of grain sales to Russia. He even threatened a highly symbolic public response, a boycott of the 1980 Olympics in Moscow. The Soviet Union must realize that its continued aggressive actions will endanger both the participation of athletes and the travel to Moscow. But there was something else the U.S. was doing to combat the Soviet invasion that Carter didn't mention that night. He had already signed a top-secret finding authorizing the CIA to funnel lethal weapons to Islamic guerrilla forces who were resisting the Soviets. The Afghan guerrillas are capable of launching attacks on the Soviets and then fleeing. The Mujahideen are all over the country. They are numerous. They wanted to make us communists. Thank God we are Muslims. We are following God's path. We do not want communism in Afghanistan. As you were about to hear, few did more to publicize and champion the Mujahideen war against the Soviets than a young Saudi journalist dispatched to report on the conflict some years later. I'm talking, of course, about Jamal Khashoggi, and his coverage of the war made a huge splash depicting the Mujahideen fighters as noble warriors against the Soviet infidels. And the hero of his stories, a fellow Saudi who arranged for Jamal to get unusual access to the front lines of the fight. Between 1980 and 1981, a newcomer from Saudi Arabia arrives to join the rebels trying to oust the Soviets, Osama bin Laden. Jamal's coverage of the Afghan conflict marked the start of a long and complicated relationship with bin Laden that, like much in Khashoggi's life, is open to multiple interpretations. When he went to Afghanistan, was he just a journalist in search of his first big story? Or was he a fellow Islamist who was promoting the cause of a Mujahideen warrior whose goals he very much shared? Khashoggi never condoned the terrorist violence for which bin Laden would later become notorious. But he never renounced their friendship either and the bond they forged in the caves of Afghanistan was a formative experience that defined his early career. He retained a soft spot for bin Laden that stayed with him for years, even after the al-Qaeda chief's murderous attacks on America. This, Justin, you were looking at a, obviously a very disturbing live shot there. We understand that a plane has crashed into the World Trade Center. Osama bin Laden claims responsibility. The world's most dangerous terrorist. I'm Michael Isikoff. Welcome back to Conspiracy Land, the secret lives and brutal death of Jamal Khashoggi. This is episode three, Jamal and Osama. The path that led Jamal Khashoggi to those caves in Afghanistan winds through a college campus in the heart of middle America. The first thing that you remembered about him is he had a lot of energy. 
Um, he, he was also really focused on what he wanted to do in life. That's Jenny Thompson, an old friend of Jamal Khashoggi's from his college days. Like his older cousin Adnan, the arms dealer we heard about in the last episode who attended school in the United States, so too did Jamal Khashoggi. Jamal had been born the son of prosperous date farmers in the holy city of Medina. But when it came time to go to college, he wound up at Indiana State University in Terre Haute on the banks of the Wabash River. In 1979, Ginny was a high school senior in Terre Haute, working on her school newspaper when she met Jamal, then a college freshman. What Jamal wanted to do, she says, was to be a journalist. He wrote his first story for the college newspaper about UFOs. But at the same time, Thompson also recalls the quiet ambition of her new friend. I can tell you that Jamal was very focused on being a player in his country. And I, I think he felt a sense of responsibility toward his country and towards his people. He wanted to be an influencer. You know, isn't that what the ultimate goal of any journalist is? As improbable as it sounds, Indiana State had become something of a mecca for Saudi students in the late 1970s. There were hundreds of Saudis at the school at this time, but Jamal Khashoggi made an impression. A devout Sunni Muslim with strong views about heretics in their ranks. I considered him a friend. And uh, I think he considered me a friend, or at least a Muslim brother. But to me, he was just a practicing Muslim. He fasted in Ramadan. He prayed at the mosque. He attended the mosque regularly. Omar Farouk, an American convert to Islam, lived in the same apartment building as Jamal, and the two of them bonded at the local mosque. Did you pray with him at the Islamic Center or at the mosque? Of course. Yeah, we would have uh, prayed for you know, our Friday prayers or any daily prayers, you know, the it, it would not have been uncommon, perhaps, to run into him. 1979 was a tumultuous time in the Mideast, and not just because the Soviets had invaded Afghanistan. It was also the year of a revolution in Iran that overthrew that country's secular but repressive Shah. Fundamentalism took hold with a fury and a force that helped ignite the still impoverished masses in Iran who felt they had little reason to be grateful to the Shah. It was a subject that was very much a topic of conversation and even heated debate at the mosque. Jamal Khashoggi, like many of his fellow countrymen, was strongly opposed to the Iranian revolution, according to Farouk. The radicals who seized power were Shia Muslims, not Sunnis like the Saudis. And the theological differences were a preoccupation of Jamal's, even to the point of instructing his friend Omar not to fraternize with other Shia at the mosque. So at some point, Jamal and I, uh, he, he would have approached me about why I was spending time with the, these uh, Shiites. This was prejudice toward the Shia that, as Farouk remembers it, Jamal very much shared with his fellow Sunnis from Saudi Arabia. As far as Jamal's attitude, I don't think it was different than any of the other Saudis, and that would just be, as I say, pure hostility. Just as important for Jamal and his fellow Saudis that year was another momentous event that shook the Middle East, an armed takeover of the Holy Mosque in Mecca. Heavily armed Islamic zealots had seized control, taken hostages, and demanded the Saudi monarchy bring an abrupt halt to liberalization moves within the kingdom. 
French commandos were brought in to free the mosque, and hundreds died. But the event had a huge impact on Saudi Arabia, causing the royal family to appease the country's harshly conservative clerical establishment and making the country even more intolerant than it already was. Farouk noticed that his friend shared something else in common with his fellow countrymen beyond a disdain for Shia Muslims, a palpable fear that the Saudi government had spies who were keeping close tabs on them. They were careful and guarded about anything to do with politics or current events uh, because they didn't know who among them might actually be working for the government or would report back to, you know, the embassy in Washington, D.C. or maybe a consulate building in Chicago or whatever. It was a fear that, as events would have it, would prove more than justified. Jamal returned to Saudi Arabia and landed a job at a bookshop in Jeddah. But given his strong Islamic beliefs, he also fell in with another political movement that was coursing through the Middle East, the Muslim Brotherhood. The Brotherhood was, in its earliest days, a secret society, begun in the 1920s in Egypt, that sought to place a purified version of Islam at the center of civic life in the countries of the Arab world. Jamal had identified himself with the Brotherhood as early as high school, attending meetings in private homes, going to lectures. But when he came back from Indiana, Jamal's religious activism led to a years-long friendship with another Muslim Brotherhood member who would play a huge role in his early professional life, Osama bin Laden. By his own account, Jamal Khashoggi said, you know, bin Laden was a pretty good friend of his uh, at that time. That's journalist Peter Bergen, who interviewed Jamal extensively for a book he wrote about Bin Laden. I guess he did. He talked to you somewhat about what he liked and admired about uh, the, Bin Laden. Jamal Khashoggi, you know, the picture of Bin Laden at this time that Jamal agreed with is that, you know, he was, this is a guy in his early 20s. He's modest, humble, retiring bit more religious than a lot of others, even in sort of the context of uh, fairly conservative Saudi Arabia, you know, somebody who was not listening to music, somebody who didn't put pictures on his walls, somebody who was very religiously observant. And that's the picture that uh, Jamal Khashoggi gave of his friend bin Laden at the time. I met him in Saudi Arabia uh, in the mid-80s. But I, many of his friends who were part of the moment at the time were my friends. That's Jamal in 2005, describing his relationship with bin Laden in interviews he gave to another journalist, Lawrence Wright. For some of from a generation, our generation, who were hoping to establish the Islamic State. Just any Islamic state, anywhere, because we believe that one state will lead to another. Mm-hmm. It could have a domino effect, which could mm-hmm. transform or, or, or reverse the history of uh, mankind. Mm-hmm. Khashoggi is talking here about his views in the early to mid-1980s, years before bin Laden became the world's most wanted terrorist. But as his comments suggest, the two young Saudis shared a worldview common among Muslim brothers back then about the need to advance the cause of Islam and defend it wherever and whenever it was under attack. 
And at the time, there was no greater perceived threat to Islam than the Soviet occupation of Afghanistan. Resistance to the Soviet invasion has marshaled the energies of a whole people into taking on the mighty Soviet army, despite terrifying odds. One resistance commander remarked, there are only two things we Afghans need, the Quran and more stingers. By 1987, Jamal had begun to make it in the world of journalism, working as a reporter for the Arab News, an English-language newspaper in Saudi Arabia. His friend bin Laden invited Jamal to come to Afghanistan to cover the war he and other Islamic Arab fighters were waging against the godless Soviets. It was a war that was being secretly supported with weapons and cash from the CIA, much of it financed by Saudi intelligence, then headed by Prince Turki bin Faisal. Despite the dangers, Jamal Khashoggi leapt at the chance, and it proved for him a godsend, leading to his first major scoop as a journalist. This is the first time a major Arab media outlet had sent a journalist and, and then had this big story published. So it was Bin Laden's first brush with a significant amount of publicity. Jamal's accounts got attention. Arab youths fight shoulder to shoulder with Mujahideen, read the headline on one of his stories, dated May 4th, 1988, that touted the critical role that Bin Laden was playing in that fight. Illustrating the article was a photograph of four of those youths. And in the middle, standing tall, is a smiling Jamal, carrying a rocket-propelled grenade launcher. Next to him is a photograph of Bin Laden, flanked by his fellow fighters. It was a time Jamal would remember fondly for years, and that very much included his bond with Bin Laden. Here he is again in one of those interviews Jamal did with Lawrence Wright. How many times do you think that you spent with Bin Laden? Oh, I don't know. Many, many times. Mm -hmm. I spent uh, travels with him. I stayed in his camps, uh, slept in the same cave in Afghanistan, mm -hmm. stayed in his home in Peshawar. You're in Jalalabad. You, it was during Ramadan, and you were praying with Abdullah Azam and, and Osama, uh, yeah. and it was very moving. Why, yeah. why was it moving? What was, what was... Okay, it was moving because we were praying in, in some sort of a cave. It was dark at night, uh, on candlelight. Jihad is sentimental to a Muslim, the concept of jihad, and it's being close. Uh, to God, uh -huh. knowing that you are doing the right thing for the sake of God, uh, mm -hmm. fighting those uh, bloody Soviet, Soviet infidels. It, it, was, it was a beautiful scene to me. Yes. Especially at that, at that age. Hanan al-Atar, the flight attendant who Jamal married in an Islamic ceremony in 2018, recounted even more recent conversations with Jamal about his fond memories of bin Laden. Then he imitated to me how he was sleeping in a cave, which, which is in a rough area. And he wasn't in a good posture. And Usama bin Laden amended Jamal's body and covered him. He said, Hanan, he's, as a human, he's very kind. He's not like what you think. If Jamal's articles about the Afghan jihad gave bin Laden his first burst of publicity, they also put Jamal on the map as an important Saudi journalist. So much so that when an American academic, NYU political scientist Barnett Rubin, was in Saudi Arabia on a State Department tour in 1989, 
U.S. officials set up a meeting for him with Jamal at the U.S. consulate. And it was at that meeting that he he, uh, gave me some copies of his articles, which included the first reference to and photograph of Osama bin Laden that I have ever seen. Rubin learned something else at that meeting. That Jamal, perhaps because of his newfound prominence, was a rarity among Saudi journalists, and that he would dare, at least in private, to raise questions about the conduct of his government. Well, it was typical Jamal. He was, he, even though he hardly knew me, he immediately started telling me how uh, all about the mistakes that Saudi Arabia was making in Afghanistan. The Saudi official who Jamal blamed for those mistakes was a senior member of the royal family, Prince Salman. Jamal contended Salman was diverting funds to small sectarian splinter groups in Afghanistan, undercutting the greater cause that bin Laden was fighting for. The point is that he was like openly critical of one of the most influential, powerful Saudi princes. Yes, well, I guess he wouldn't publish that, but he he was very frank in his discussion with me, yes. And how did that strike you about what he was saying? Well, it was very refreshing because when you go around the world and talk to people, you very quickly make a distinction between people who have something to say and people who are just regurgitating something. And Jamal definitely belonged to the former category. More than a quarter century later, Prince Salman would become king of Saudi Arabia, and he would later appoint his son, Mohammed bin Salman, as crown prince. He would have his own complaints about Jamal Khashoggi, but Rubin's account raises the intriguing question over whether that was, in part, the residue of a family grudge. In 1989, the Soviets withdrew their forces from Afghanistan, and bin Laden would return to Saudi Arabia. By then, he had secretly formed al-Qaeda, and his rhetoric took on a more radical tone. He railed against corrupt Arab regimes, including his own government in Riyadh, and the presence of American infidels on Saudi soil. The new enemy was America. Bin Laden, the man who declared war on America. He wanted it to get out of Saudi Arabia. Bin Laden would soon take off for Khartoum in Sudan. He was surrounded by hardcore Egyptians like Ayman al-Zawahiri, and his extreme rhetoric and funding of Islamic insurgent groups were viewed as increasingly menacing to the Saudi royals. One of bin Laden's cousins reached out to Jamal and asked him to go to Sudan to try to coax the country's prodigal son to renounce violence and return home, a move that was almost certainly blessed, if not assigned, by Saudi intelligence and its chief, Prince Turkey. Well, that's an interesting choice, isn't it? Because, uh, you know, they didn't send one of their own family members. And they had to pick somebody that bin Laden would respect and, and possibly listen to. So Jamal was obviously in good standing uh, with bin Laden at that time. And also he would have had to have been in good standing with the royal family to go at all as that kind of emissary. So what a strange position to be in. You know, bin Laden has already announced himself as an anti-royal uh, family. I mean, he was laying attacks on the royal family right and left. And the royal family definitely wanted to shut him up. And so they, they agreed to have Jamal go be this intermediary. I wonder if there's anybody else that could have filled that role. 
Here's how Jamal described what he saw as his mission, framing it as a big journalistic opportunity. To me, it was another scoop if I, if I succeed in doing. My job was to get Osama to give me an interview where he will break the ice with the Saudi government mm-hmm. and denounce violence. For three nights in a row, Jamal met with bin Laden during lavish dinners on a terrace by the al-Qaeda leader's house with Sudanese servants laying out platters of rice and lamb. Armed with his tape recorder, Khashoggi pushed him. He denounced violence with the record. Oh. And I couldn't get him to speak to me. He was almost to do that. Mm-hmm. You have it on tape? No. Wow. I had the tape in my pocket. I had the tape in my pocket. And I would put the table in front of him and say, I'm ready. Uh-huh. Did not miss me tomorrow night. But each night, bin Laden resisted talking on the record. Instead, he reverted to boasting about his plans to drive American forces out of the Arabian Peninsula. We hit him in Aden and they left, bin Laden told him. We hit them in Somalia and they left again. In the third night, I said to him, Osama, look, I am leaving uh, the day after. You decided to do the interview, call me. It was during that dinner that somebody approached bin Laden, and he got up and started talking with a group of men in the shadows who had Egyptian accents. When he returned, bin Laden started trying to cut a deal with Jamal. Later, he would start negotiating with me to, to say to me something like, uh, what will I get for that? He, he wants to do a bargain. He wants to... He was just trying to be a politician, like... Uh, for him denouncing the violence in Saudi Arabia. What's in it for me? By the third night, Jamal started to realize his attempt to bring his old friend bin Laden home was going to end in failure. I would say to him, Osama, you should be aware that people, Saudi people, will be afraid to be seen with you in public. Uh-huh. What, why don't you see that? Mm-hmm. Again, he would just put that smile, that famous smile on his face. So uh, it made me feel as if he's out of touch, as if uh, he doesn't realize what he has done or become of. Today, Wright says those dinners with Jamal in Sudan marked a turning point for bin Laden. In Jamal's telling of the story, it seems like a, a big part of him wanted to make that declaration. I mean, he said it. You know, he said he would renounce violence off the tape, you know, not on the record. And then uh, Jamal said that at some point during one of the meals, some of the Egyptians called bin Laden aside, and it, it could well have been Zawafri or one of his minions, and, uh, and gave him the news, you know, you can't do this. But I think that there was a terrific longing on the part of bin Laden to go home, or at least have the ability to go home. And, you know, that was uh, that was a decisive moment in bin Laden's terrorist career because he had the chance to go home and all would be forgiven. And moreover, they give him even more money. But he made a different choice. Uh, Did you get the sense that Jamal was frustrated? Oh, yeah, he was very frustrated. for, For one thing, simply as a reporter, what a story. You know, what a story that would be. You know, I brought bin Laden home. Uh, can you imagine? Uh, I mean, professionally, it could have been a tremendous coup. 
There's two final points we should make about Jamal Khashoggi's relationship with Osama bin Laden. Khashoggi never endorsed the terrorism that al-Qaeda became infamous for in the years that followed their encounter in Sudan. The bombings of the U.S. embassies in Africa, the attack on the USS Cole off the coast of Yemen, and the events of September 11th. Jamal's later writings explicitly condemned the slaughter of innocent civilians. But Jamal also never repudiated his friendship with bin Laden either, and the subject would sometimes result in tensions with friends and colleagues. The thing with Jamal, there were so many arguments, so many things that drove me crazy that, you know, there were, I don't know, hundreds of times. Nuaf Obaid was a longtime friend of Jamal's who served with him in the years after 9-11 as a strategic advisor to Prince Turkey, the former intelligence chief who had been tapped to be the Saudi ambassador in London. Obaid says Jamal for years had a hard time accepting bin Laden for the terrorist he was. And it took him a while to really factor in that Osama was the person that, it, that the Americans were saying was and the Saudis were saying he was. So for him, Osama, what he had done in Afghanistan and how the, the godless communists were defeated, for him, that impacted him a lot. Throughout his life, that thing impacted him. So he saw him as a hero. Obeid says he would press Khashoggi on the subject, telling him, You seem to still have a soft spot for him. I don't get it. When you say he, he still had that soft spot, how did he express that? There was always a justification. To the point where sometimes I would just get annoyed. This is exactly what he is, I told him. He killed innocent people. He killed mothers. So one day I walked in early morning to his office here in London at the embassy. And I had pictures of the the men and women throwing themselves out of the buildings. You remember these pictures that didn't... World Trade Towers, yeah. Right. That they weren't being shown on the media. And I can't remember, but I got these pictures. And I went in and I showed it to him. I'm like, you see? Look. This is bin Laden that did this. This is not X, Y, Z. And if we cannot come out and condemn this, then we are no better than him. And he took the pictures and he went quiet. And then several hours later, I saw him again. I don't know what we were doing. I said, yeah, you're right. Fair to say he was conflicted on the subject of Osama bin Laden. Yeah. Well, okay. I mean, conflicted, if you want to have the proper diplomatic terms, yes, he was conflicted. I, I would say he was ideologically, and I would even go to the, I would even go as far as theologically conflicted by him. Yeah. It was an inner conflict that lasted right up to the end of the terrorist leader's life. The United States has conducted an operation that killed Osama bin Laden, the leader of al-Qaeda. For many Americans, the raid that killed bin Laden was a triumph that brought ultimate justice to a mass murderer. Within hours of the raid, Jamal Khashoggi tweeted in Arabic about the death of his old friend, who he referred to by the nom de guerre he used in Afghanistan, Abu Abdullah. I just fell apart crying heartbreak to you, Abu Abdullah, Jamal wrote. You were beautiful, brave in those beautiful days in Afghanistan before you succumbed to anger and passion. It was a tribute of sorts to the source who had given him his first big scoop. Next on Conspiracy Land, after a stint as a Saudi media spinner, Jamal returns to journalism and is caught up in a revolution sweeping through the Middle East. Either the 
this is the first Arab revolution of the 21st century, or it will be brutally suppressed. That momentous event spread protests across the Middle East. They helped topple longtime leaders in Tunisia, Egypt, and Libya. While the Saudi government does everything it can to shut it down. King Abdullah of Saudi calls Obama and he says, look, the only people protesting are Al-Qaeda, Hamas, the Muslim Brotherhood, and Iran. I was like, no, 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 just look away from those young people. They're all just Al-Qaeda. And, and that was the Saudi mindset in a nutshell. That's next on Conspiracy Land, episode four, A Revolution Crushed. Conspiracy Land is a production of Skullduggery, the Yahoo News podcast I co-host every week with Yahoo News Editor-in-Chief Dan Clydman and the Brennan Center's Victoria Bassetti. In putting together this series, special thanks to Suzanne Smalley for yeoman's research and tracking down sometimes elusive interview subjects. And as with our past Conspiracy Land productions, a huge shout out to the folks at Long Story Short, executive producer Bob Ewell, associate producer Emily Russell, and editor Andrew Strassel, with audio recording and mixing by Aaron Hoffman and Evan Sevilla, and research by Josh Hall and Belinda Shaw. And of course, LSS Chief Jessica Stewart. None of this could have happened without their invaluable work.